Socio Chair of Sociology is here. So, okay. I'd like to uh, thank everybody for coming and get this underway. Thank you all. I want to make sure we have time for Miles. I am grateful for all of you uh, coming out. Uh, Miles Hugh Stone is the professor is a professor of social psychology and director of the Center for the Study of Intergroup Conflict at Oxford University. His primary research interests have included attribution theory, social cognition, stereotyping, intergroup relations, and his recent work is focused on reducing intergroup conflict through intergroup contact and changing stereotypes. He's worked in Northern Ireland exploring the nature of the interactions between Catholics and Protestants, and his work shows how intergroup emotions, including anxiety and empathy, affect the outcomes of trust and forgiveness in situations of intergroup contact. Recently, he has been working on a project entitled Social Identity Intolerance in Mixed and Segregated Areas of Northern Ireland. Miles has written uh, numerous books and journal articles. His publications include Understanding Attitudes to the European Community, Contact and Conflict in Intergroup Encounters, and stereotyping, Stereotypes and Stereotyping. Uh, he's worked closely with our former colleague Marilyn Brewer and published a number or co-authored a number of works with her. And he's the former editor of the British Journal of Social Psychology and the co-founding editor of the European Review of Social Psychology. He has many honors. He's received the President's Award for Distinguished Contributions to Psychological Knowledge, the Gordon Allport Intergroup Relations Prize from the Society of the Psychological Study of Social Issues. And I could go on and on, but you're not here to hear me. You're here to hear Miles. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Miles Houston, and we're very glad to have him here. Thank you very much indeed. Sorry, I should just flip this on. And I should do something with these, these lights, I guess. Oh, okay, lovely. Good. Uh, well, thank you for that warm introduction. And I'm absolutely delighted to be with you today. A um, couple of things at the, at the beginning. One of the things that has always excited me about um, American academia is the, is the sense of energy here. And I always see that. Um, when giving talks, you know, with a, a couple of, uh, of my friends, we've discussed this in the past, that with British audiences, you need to wake them up. This is never necessary uh, with, Brit with American audiences. So with British audiences, it would be customary to say, you know, by the way, please do feel free to ask questions, maybe at the end if you'd like to, whereas here you'll probably have your first questions with my first slide. Um, and, and feel free, indeed, to interrupt me. I would prefer to have questions of understanding and information as we go along, just that that will help me to keep track of the time. But if you prefer it otherwise and wish to attack me en route, that's fine, but then you have to invite me back to finish the talk next year. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so what I'm going to try to do in the time available is uh, give those of you who haven't got it already a little bit of background knowledge about Northern Ireland, uh, most fascinating real-life laboratory to study in. A wonderful place if you're interested in multiple identities, identities that vary in their strength and intensity, and also a very interesting place uh, to, appropriately as it, as it is, to explore social identity complexity. And I say appropriately because that is a concept very much associated with Marilyn Brewer. So she kind of haunts me on my left shoulder throughout this, this talk. And in fact, she and I tried to do some work on this topic a couple of years ago, and uh, as, the, as the expression goes, the data didn't behave. Um, <laughs> 
Marilyn moved on to other things, and I moved on to other things, and we pursued the topic, and now I think the data are behaving. So let's see what you think. Um, I'm also either bravely or foolishly um, going to disagree publicly with one of your greatest political science scholars, um, Robert Putnam, uh, who has a, a particular hypothesis which has generally come to be known as the diversity distrust hypothesis. Um, of course, when we set out to do empirical work, uh, we always report the numbers as they are, but this is uh, an area that I always prayed uh, we would get the results that we did get because I think it's so important as a message to share with the people of the world and the newspaper editors, the people who live in the communities in our countries, that there is no necessary negative association between diversity and trust. And, uh, and I will show you some data that, that I think relate to that. And I have long been interested uh, as a social psychologist in this notion of intergroup contact, which is closely linked to the idea of segregation. And we all know in your country and my country and many other countries of the world, people live largely segregated lives uh, for much of the time. And I think it's important for us as social psychologists, while we also do wonderful things in the lab, to uh, get outside of it sometimes and live a bit of life and, uh, and study people uh, where they spend their lives. So some of the, the research questions that I would like to, uh, to explore begin um, with identity. Now, we have a number of identities available to us. They vary in strength. They vary in salience according to situations in which we find ourselves in. I'm going to look first how these identities vary from location to location, comparing mixed and segregated communities. And then I'm going to look at whether identification works in a rather more sophisticated way as a moderator of some of the effects of contact that we've been able to identify. Then I'm going to look at this notion of uh, identity complexity, which I will define and explain in more detail as we get there. But it's basically, it refers to the idea that we either belong to a set of groups that all overlap massively, so, for example, you might belong to a polo club, you might belong to a political party, uh, you might follow a sports team, and you might go to a particular church. And the people who do all those four things pretty much all stack up on top of each other. And that's actually pretty much what a lot of life is like in a place like Northern Ireland. Or alternatively, you might have a set of different identities that really did intermingle in a, in a rather interesting way so that you might find yourself um, being, uh, let's say, some strange constellation of pro-war, um, anti-abortion, um, pro-EU, anti-Brit, or something like that, so that you would come together with, with all sorts of people who had different interests and views. And I want to look at the role of social identity complexity in helping to achieve generalized reductions of prejudice. And in a sense, this is one of the toughest tests of intergroup contact because it's testing the idea that positive contact with members of one outgroup, say Catholics with Protestants, can, do you choose your term, trickle down, roll over, pan out towards other groups. So if I were a Protestant and I had positive interactions with Catholics, would that also lead me to be more open towards gypsies or travelers towards gay men who suffer uh, 
prejudice and discrimination in Northern Ireland towards ethnic minorities who have recently arrived in Northern Ireland and also suffered prejudice and discrimination. And it turns out, just to spoil the story, it turns out that social identity complexity is a very important part of that component. So for those of you who don't know um, Northern Ireland, this is a, a map of the religious geography of Belfast. Sorry, can you see that? that okay? If Belfast were a, a really well-integrated, well-mixed city, um, the whole of that map would be um, the color of that sort of lightish green. Okay? In fact, what you see is over on this side, you have great swathes of dark green, which are predominantly Catholic areas. Over on this side, you have great swathes of red, which are predominantly Protestant areas. And this picture is picked up and replicated largely up and down the country. This is the bit that makes it such a fascinating laboratory uh, for me to work in. So let me tell you about the design of the first study I'm going to tell you about. This was a, a study that we conducted um, in six northern Irish towns. We had recently been doing some related work in Belfast, so for this project we kept away from Belfast. We went to three mixed and three segregated neighborhoods in these towns. I should point out to you um, just how high that percentage of people in Northern Ireland is who live in completely segregated neighborhoods, 35 to 40%. Uh, we took a random sample from each neighborhood's each neighborhood, and we, of course, tried to match those neighborhoods as well uh, as we could on all the things that, that you would consider relevant, like education, unemployment, extent of sectarian violence, and so on. And we ended up with a, uh, a large sample, nearly uh, 2,000 members of the general population, roughly equal sizes of Catholics and Protestants. And uh, this, I should warn you, is a cross-sectional study. Those of you who are immediately reaching for that question about the limitations of cross-sectional data, I'll ask you to hang in there. Uh, there will be longitudinal data coming your way. Okay, a little bit more about multiple categorization before we get into the data. The easiest way, simplifying terribly, to understand Northern Ireland is that it is a conflict between people who want Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. Those people are called the Unionists because they want to remain part of that union. And those people who want to see unification with the Republic of Ireland. And those people are predominantly Catholics. And those two categories largely overlap, but not exclusively. In our most, most recent study on identity, we're actually finding significant subsets of Catholics who want to be part of the UK and Protestants who want to be part of Ireland. So things are, are mixing too. However, not only these ethno-religious categories are important, other ones are too. The national categories, maybe neighborhood categories and so on. And of course the, the The uh, government, uh, or one arm of the government who funded this particular research, I should emphasize, by the way, they do not bind our hands at all. We, we provide, uh, they provide us with money, but they do not um, constrain us in any way, shape, or form about what we can ask or what we can report. They're very interested in the emergence of 
neighborhoods as a new form of identity. So that there are an increasing number of mixed neighborhoods. There are some planned mixed communities that we hope to study in the future. And they're very interested in the, the state of the common in-group or the Northern Irish identity. Uh, one of the theoretical positions that's been tremendously powerful in this area has been that associated with Davidio and Gertner, the common in-group identity model. And I have enormous fun with those two because they're both very good friends of mine and I disagree publicly and privately with them and vice versa. And we, you know, we relish the fact when we find a result that disproves the other one's theory. Um, I've actually got some nice data here which are, which are pro-Davidio. But the bit that's not pro-Davidio is that, of course, if the problem with that simple, then people would have embraced the Northern Irish identity many, many years ago. Um, and the problem is that while this identity seemed to be growing a few years ago, it's a, it's a minority identity. There aren't too many people um, from either side who endorse it. But we'll see how it works. So just for, I realize one of the exciting things about talking to, to this audience, uh, and one of the, the uh, challenges too, is to keep you guys, all of you, on board uh, while I go down my empirical highway. So I work with surveys, I work with survey items, and I guess I need to, to stop from time to time and explain to you how we do things. So let me tell you first how we, we measure um, the strength of social identification. And we've done this in this survey at three levels. So we've done it for the national group, so whether you elect to call yourself British or Irish. We've done it for the common in-group. Um, we've done it uh, for um, the, the Northern Irish identity. And um, we've done it for neighborhood. And, of course, we've done it for Catholic, Protestant as well. We try not to call those religious identities anymore. We try and call them ethno-religious, which is more of a mouthful, but it's more accurate. So this is a, a four-item scale um, based on one developed by Rupert Brown and colleagues, which asks essentially just about the strength of this. And one of the challenges and one of the really interesting things to be doing in the future uh, is to take the notion of social identity and unpack that much further. There's been a wonderful theoretical piece written by Ashmore and colleagues in 2004, which argues that there might be as, as many as 10 different dimensions of social identity. I don't quite believe there are that many, and we've just collected some data on that too, but there are different dimensions. This one, we're really just looking at the strength. And so we ask people these kinds of questions, and we ask them to make fairly simple endorsements on a survey. And just to lead you in slowly to the kind of results we've got, um, I'm collapsing here uh, over Catholic and Protestant. I'm just comparing um, the segregated and the mixed um, neighborhoods. And you can see that the identities that people attach greatest importance to are the ethno-religious and the national ones. Those people who set their hopes on the common in-group and the neighborhood identities, those identities are there, but they're much less important. If you break it down further, you can see why I didn't show this one to you first because it's even more complicated. But if you break it down by neighborhood and by uh, ethno-religious group, you still get the same picture. It's the, um, it's the ethno-religious and the national identities that tend to be the ones that are seen as more important. Now, we did something uh, a little bit experimental in this survey, too. This comes from um, work that was done many, many years ago by my, my friend and long-term collaborator in Northern Ireland, Ed Cairns. He had the idea uh, of presenting people with a number of fictitious situations and asking them how they would feel in that situation. 
which identity would be salient. We came back many years later. We did this, but we did it not just with a dichotomous would you feel the identity yes or no, but we did it with a strength of identity measure, a multipoint scale. And given this interest uh, in the uh, the Northern Irish identity, in some of our studies, we've added that, that identity too. So we've asked people to think of, for example, spending time with your family, driving through an outgroup area. So if you could imagine yourself in a car, leaving an area which is very clearly, safely your territory, going into another area marked by flags and um, paintings on the walls, murals. You're suddenly very clear that you're in an outgroup area. You might see um, an outgroup flag, um, you might be watching the local news. You might be seeing an outgroup football strip. This is a strange thing for, for an American audience perhaps to understand that you might not like it when you see who are your rivals here, your biggest rivals? Michigan. Michigan. I was going to say Michigan. I would have been right. Okay. So you might not like it when you see someone in a Michigan shirt, uh, but that's a, an acceptable level of dislike. But what they do in... Oh, maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't. Uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, if you are a Protestant, then you tend to follow the, the Glasgow Rangers team. If you're a Catholic, you tend to follow the Glasgow Celtic team. And you're actually banned from wearing these shirts in public places like pubs because they are like red, red flags to a bull. Um, so it is very threatening for people. And then you might also see a, an in-group or an out-group flag. And what this graph shows, if you, if you look across all these settings here, um, the self-reported salience of the ethno-religious identity is stronger for people who live in the segregated than in the mixed uh, settings. And the only one that goes in the opposite um, direction I think is rather interesting. So you imagine that, that you're a Catholic family and you live in a mixed area, and when you're together uh, as a Catholic family in a purely homogeneous ethno-group setting, that is when your identity is a little bit stronger um, than it is for people who live in the segregated settings. So this is all by, by way of setting the scene for you. I want to go back now to identity complexity, which is this, this question of how people represent, how they cognitively represent their, the interrelationships between their multiple social identities. And if all those groups are perceived to overlap, then we say that that identity structure is simplified. Uh, and if there's a much more interesting um, interleaving between them, we say that it is complex. And work by Marilyn Brewer and her colleagues has been particularly influential in showing that people who have more complex social identities tend to be more tolerant and more open and show less bias toward members of outgroups. So this is the first time, I'm pretty sure it's the first time people have ever used measures like this in a random sample survey because they're quite demanding measures, they're just the way they are worded. And we had to work very hard to come up with some forms that, that would work for us. So what we're doing here is we are exploring the relationship between the complexity of the social environment and the complexity of people's representation of their social identities. Now, just to make life a little bit more challenging for us, uh, Marilyn and Sonia Rokas drew a further distinction between two types of identity, what they called overlap complexity and similarity complexity. And I'm going to give you some examples of the measures that we used for those two to make that clear. 
So social identity complexity of the overlap variety, what you would do is you would say things like, how many Protestants in Northern Ireland would you say consider themselves British? And the answer to that would be around 75%. How many Catholics do you think consider themselves British? That would be much lower. And you go on like that, and, and you report on this scale here from 0 to 100. If you compare the segregated and the mixed communities on this measure, you get, as you might have hoped, uh, a very slight effect for the Protestants, but a more substantial effect for the Catholics. You do get evidence of greater social identity complexity in the mixed than in the segregated area. And, of course, this is controlling for socioeconomic status, um, education, and, and all those other kinds of variables. The social identity complexity similarity measure is rather different. It says, for example, being an in-grouper, you don't use that word with a participant, you give it to a Catholic, you say being a Catholic in Northern Ireland means the same as being an in-grouper in national terms. So being a Catholic means the same as being Irish, or a typical Catholic is very similar to the typical Irish person. So you're looking at the overlap between the prototypes of the two categories. And these are not necessarily related, these two forms of complexity, although they often are. And we found no difference comparing the mixed and the segregated environments on this measure. Now I want to move towards um, Putnam's work and why I think it's very interesting. There are a number of different ways in which we can, con we can conceive the relationship between the percentage of outgroupers in an environment and the outcomes associated with that. Now, they might be white people living in an area of Columbus which has a large number of African Americans. They might be white people in Oxford living in an area which has a high number of Asians. Or they might be Catholics in Northern Ireland living in an area with a high percentage of Protestants. One of the theories uh, that Putnam calls threat theory um, is he says that percentage of outgroup members leads to perceptions of threat and competition, and that's associated with higher prejudice. And that is the perspective that he favors. The perspective that I favor is that the percentage of outgroupers present provides you with something we call the opportunity for contact. You don't have to take up that opportunity, but you may do. And if I can give you a concrete example of that, you're a group of people gathered in front of me today. My guess is that probably most of you are sitting at the table with people you know already or usually sit with. There'll be a couple of people, at least one of whom I recognize, who's come over from psychology, uh, and he may be sitting on his own because he doesn't know anybody here, and he may go up at the, go away at the end of the talk having spoken to no one here. So he hasn't picked up his opportunity for contact. So there is this distinction between what I would call mere, mix, mere mixing and meaningful contact. <coughs> and if you take up that opportunity, then you are more likely to make friends across group lines, and that's likely to be associated with reduced prejudice. Now, I'm a mild-mannered Brit, and I don't get mad very often. But this phrase really made me mad. Partnum writes in, in his 2007 paper, he said, I think it is fair to say 
that most, though not all, empirical studies have tended instead to support conflict theory. At one level, I just have no idea how he can make that statement because since 2006, there has been a meta-analysis that was pre-published in a chapter form in 2000 by Pettigrew and Trott, analyzing 500 studies, 250,000 participants involved in these studies, showing a reliable effect across all these studies. So I don't know what the empirical justification for that hypothesis is. I think we could have an argument against the work on intergroup contact. I think we could say far too many of those studies have been carried out by well-meaning social psychologists on their undergraduate studies, on their undergraduate subjects. They have not been done in the neighborhood. Now, that, that would be a reasonable point to make, and then you might want to say, does it also work outside the neighborhood? But, of course, the meta-analysis has been able to look at all those kind of things, taking subject sample as a moderator. So, believe me, I, I'd stake my life on it. There is an effect of the type that Tom Pettigrew and others argue between contact and lowered prejudice. So, I, I do strongly disagree with that. But okay, now I've got to collect my own data and I've got to try to disprove Putnam on his terms. Now this is a, I'm sorry, this comes out rather small. I've taken this from his 2007 paper. And this is a, a map labeled racial homogeneity and interracial trust. And up here on the vertical axis, he's got trust other races a lot. And along here, he's got the Herfindahl index, which is a measure of homogeneity in census tracts. And what he finds here is as you go upwards and you get to more homogeneity, so think um, Montana, Bismarck, New Hampshire, and somewhere called Lewiston in Maine, you've got greater trust in outgroups despite the fact that presumably in these little places in Maine, there are no outgroup members present. So I, know I find it a very hard hypothesis to, to believe in terms of, of plausibility. Now, I'm going to look for some evidence to challenge this uh, in our neighborhoods. But we're also at the same time going to challenge Putnam's idea. And I, I, I must say, I love reading Putnam's work. I think he writes fantastically. I, I loved reading Bowling Alone. He has got this idea of social capital, and he's presented it very clearly to people. But he's got this idea in there, too, that in homogeneous areas, in what we would call our segregated areas, social capital is higher than it is in those mixed heterogeneous areas. So, you know, if you like, at one level, you can be poor, working class, and living inside each other's houses, or you can be mixed, whether working class or otherwise, and you lack these associations and these opportunities to, to in intermingle. He gives his definition of social capital, which refers to, quote, features of social organization, such as networks, norms, and social trust that facilitate coordination and cooperation for mutual benefit. And he finds that homogeneous neighborhoods have more of this wonderful thing than heterogeneous neighborhoods do, apparently. Okay, some challenges to that hypothesis. He has the most incredible sample in that paper, 30,000 participants, okay? But as you learn in your first year at university, it doesn't matter how big your N is, it depends how it was collected, it depends how you, are, how you, answered your, you asked your questions, which questions you had, and so on. The, the, 
what I call diversity distrust hypothesis does not hold up when you disaggregate results for different groups. It doesn't adequately take account of disadvantage. And from my point of view, it doesn't include key variables like face-to-face meaningful contact. A number of papers have been published subsequently showing that when you do look at those kind of things, actually disadvantage trumps diversity. It's disadvantage that is associated with distrust, not diversity. And the other thing, um, shown in a paper by Stoller and her colleagues uh, in Canadian data, is that the negative effects that are associated with diversity no longer appear when you bring social ties into play. Those social ties, those contacts, moderate or they compensate for diversity. So it seems to be that diversity without contact may be a bad thing, but diversity with contact is not a bad thing. And I think that's a very important message. It's a very important qualifying message to add to um, Putnam's work. So our test of these data uh, in mixed and segregated neighborhoods. We found in the segregated areas that there was more and there was better quality what Putnam would call bonding social capital. In fact, in his book, Bowling Alone, he talks about sectarianism as being one of those things that you would expect to be associated as a negative consequence with bonding. You know, I'm a Catholic. I'll help my Catholic friends get jobs. I'll exclude Protestants from that labor market and so on. That's bonding social capital. It's doing good things for people who are in your network, and it's doing bad things for people who are without your neighborhood. Interestingly, we've also measured levels of health, the GHQ questionnaire. There are higher levels of psychological well-being in segregated areas too, which is an, an interesting thing. So there is some work suggesting that living in mixed areas can be quite stressful. There's work in the United States showing uh, this particularly suffered by African Americans in interrace settings. So it has to be compensated for in different ways. The other side of the equation is that if you look at the mixed areas, they show greater evidence of what Putnam would call bridging social capital. People are going outside their area. They're going to shop in shops that are owned by members of the other group and so on. There have been some interesting um, studies by geographers showing that in Belfast and some of the areas, people will not go to the, the nearest corner shop to them. They'll actually make a big detour around here to go to the corner shop that's run by a member of their own group. And in case I didn't, I should have maybe spelt that out at the beginning, whereas with race, it's very easy who, who belongs in and out groups. In Northern Ireland, it's very easy once you know first names or second names or neighborhood areas or sports interests and things like that. And where you don't know it, they have a little dance, you might call it, which is called telling. You, ask, you say to somebody, where are you from? Okay, and that, you never would ever would go up to someone and say, Excuse me, are you Catholic or Protestant? You would never, ever do that. You would just try and get around it in a roundabout way. We also found uh, evidence that you would expect to find concerning prejudice and sectarianism in these two different types of areas. In the segregated areas, there's greater support for ethno-political violence. In the mixed areas there's greater willingness for cross-group contact. And in fact, we went on to say there is greater direct contact, indirect contact, positive contact, and so on. So the benefits, the potential benefits of living in a mixed area really are coming through. 
the one thing that I want to spell out here about, uh, about contact is opportunities for contact we've done, outgroup friends we've done. I want to spend a few um, seconds or words uh, on this notion of indirect or extended contact because that might not be um, uh, a term that you've come across. And it's a brilliant idea. Uh, unfortunately, it's not mine. Um, it comes from a, a social psychologist working in the States called Steve Wright. Um, and I've become his, his number one supporter. I keep collecting wonderful bits of data that support his theory. Um, and I think it's just such a clever idea. So it, it deals with contact where you don't have any direct contacts with members of an outgroup yourself, but you have friends in your in-group who do have outgroup contacts. And obviously the closest kind of extended contact is when, say, you as a Catholic have a Catholic friend who has a Protestant friend. So you've got two strong links. And you can think of those links being um, weaker. So you could have you as a Protestant having a Catholic neighbor who has a Protestant neighbor. That's a much weaker link. And I'll show you later just how important that form of contact is, when it's important, and how it works. Now, I realize I've got about halfway through and I've thrown lots of things at you. Should I pause and, uh, and uh, let you ask me any questions of, of information? Somebody's looking at his watch, which may mean that I'm not going fast enough. Be honest with me, sir. Does it? Fine, thank you. <laughs> um, any, any questions of... Yes. No, it by, by chance. This happens almost every time we do a survey there. That's, that's who you typically find at home when you go and do the, do the survey. And does that have any meaning? Um, it, it doesn't. I wouldn't like to say it has no meaning. Uh, we, we know... Yeah, yeah, no, no, we, we know that in, in, in all of these studies, as a rule, you tend to get more sectarian scores from the men that, than the women. But for our purposes today, I think we can leave it to one side because we have an overrepresentation of women in both samples. Oh yeah, we know we know all sorts of things about about some of them because we've done we've also done um, all focus groups and interviews in the neighbourhood. We know all sorts of things that that they get up to, but they're just not in today's talk. And and they're not excluded because I don't like them. There are lots of things that are not included in today's talk. Sorry, these are two huge projects. Yes. Yes, exactly. However, if you think about it, where you choose to live is so very important of how you identify yourself. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, in a way, it would seem to be more important. Yeah. Because it really, I mean, that changes almost everything you could do. Yeah. So you're surprised. You're surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think... I think it's uh, you know that's where the social capital bit tie, ties up because you have to you have to then look at how many organisations there are that really push that neighbourhood identity you know so if you live in Germantown do you belong to all sorts of things that have that term Germantown in their in their name 
or rather, uh, are you belonging to political parties, are you belonging to bowling leagues or whatever, that aren't necessarily based on that neighborhood. I mean, this is not, remember, this is a, this is a snapshot. One will be hoping that in time the neighborhood identities will, um, will assume greater importance, but that's what it's telling us right now. Thank you. I always think it's nice to have a couple of questions at that stage too, because otherwise I'm hitting you with tons and tons of facts, and it gives you a bit of breathing space. Um, okay, so now, now a series of tests um, are of the Putnam diversity hypothesis. And I'm going to just go through one slowly to show you what the effect is, and then I'm just going to show you that we replicated it on multiple items so you don't think it was a, it was a chance thing. So we're taking up here, we're taking the measure, how would you rate the feeling of belonging in your neighborhood, which is pretty much a sort of social cohesion, um, social capital measure used in a, a number of studies. And we're using here as a measure of contact direct neighborhood contact, so we're excluding other forms of contact. So we've got feeling of belonging in the neighborhood up here on the y-axis. And down here, we've got whether people live in a segregated or they live in a mixed environment. Now, let's take, first of all, those people who have low direct contact, the people with the full line here. If you just put your attention on that line for a minute, you say, yep, that Harvard professor got it right. Okay? You live in uh, a segregated area, and you have low direct contact, your feeling uh, of belonging in that neighborhood is higher. But it's moderated by the kind of contact you have. So if you take people here who have high direct contact, then there's no difference there between the mixed and the segregated neighborhoods in how, how much they feel that they belong in the neighborhood. So... It, it looks like if you ignore contact, you get Putnam-esque results. If you include contact, you get a moderation effect. It's even clearer if you take... Um, this is the rate, rating the feeling of belonging in your neighborhood, and here um, we're taking a different measure of contact. We're taking a measure of having cross-group friends. And again, it's the full line here for having low cross-group friendship, that's the one that yields the Putnam effect. But one here, the dashed line, which is those people who have high cross-group friends, you're not getting that difference between segregated and mixed areas. We can ask, and this is the variable, of course, that Putnam is especially interested in, trust. Uh, we've got here uh, the extent to which you, you feel trust in your neighborhood. These people here, the full line, uh, who are the people who have low direct contact, people um, who live in the mixed environments tend to have lower trust than people who live in the, uh, in the segregated ones until we factor in contact. So this is only one survey, but across multiple items, we're finding a consistent effect. Actually, it's the same effect, albeit different place, different measures. It's the same effect that Stoller and her colleagues found. Is that a hand up there? Yeah. Thank you very much, yes. Okay, I'm going to skip that last one. That's just the same effect, another variable. So now I want to move on to a slightly different kind of analysis. So this is non-Putnam-esque. This is going back to social identity and social identification and looking at evidence that 
the way we feel about ourselves as members of groups, the way we identify with different groups, which groups we identify with, that that moderates in some way the ability of contact to be associated with reduced bias. And I'm going to look first at the salience of identities during contact. And together with Rupert Brown over many years, I've, I've developed a theory of intergroup contact that says something rather paradoxical. And when we first said it, nobody believed us because we said when members of different groups come together and the aim is to reduce prejudice, far from taking what you might call a colorblind perspective and pushing identities under the carpet, people have to retain their, the salience of their memberships of different groups, both their own and other people's. If you don't do that, what you will do is you'll get an interaction between two individuals who like each other well enough as individuals, but don't generalize that view to the outgroup as a whole. Then we're also going to look at um, the extent to which any of our results are moderated by the subgroup level of identification, whether they're how strongly they feel they're Catholic or Protestant, and then we're going to look at the sort of video common in-group identity. Uh, is there a different kind of moderation for people who uh, report strength of Northern Irish identity? Just let me give you an idea of the kind of scales and the measures that we've got in here. We're looking at three independent variables. We're looking at living in a segregated or a mixed environment. We've got measures of direct and extended contact. We've got two measures uh, of threat here uh, as mediators. Distinctiveness threat is something that is uh, absolutely central to Tajfel's social identity theory. It's the idea that, that we want to belong to groups, we derive a huge amount from our membership of groups, and if other groups get too close to us, overlap too much in some ways, they threaten the distinctiveness of our identity. Um, and group esteem threat is a closely related idea, but it's less related to the differentiation between the, the groups and more related to the esteem um, that you uh, attach to and receive from your groups. And then we've got our moderators, and our dependent variable is a measure of in-group bias. So these are um, structural equation models on cross-sectional data that I'm showing you now. What we're going to try to do is predict in-group bias from whether people live in segregated or mixed environments. We're predicting that that effect will be mediated by the types of contact you have, whether direct or indirect, and that will in turn be mediated by the extent to which you feel these two kinds of threat. So in the first part of the model, as you would expect, living in segregated environments is associated with having more direct and more extended contact. Also negatively related to distinctiveness threat and there's a small direct effect from the area in which you live to uh, bias with more segregation, lower bias. Then in the next stage of the model, there are paths from contact to the two types of threat uh, and directly to bias. So the model is working out theoretically in the way that we predicted with direct and extended contact mediating the neighborhood effects and the types of threat mediating the effect of contact on bias. This shows exactly the same data set, but we're entering in our first measure of identification as a moderator. 
And what we find, just as our theory predicts, is that the link between direct contact and lower bias is stronger for people who report that their group memberships are salient during contact. So it's completely opposite to what I've called the colorblind hypothesis and says contact is more effective when group memberships remain salient. Exactly the same effect down here from extended contact to bias. Why is this effect emerging? Because if you're not aware of those group memberships during salient, during contact, you cannot expect any generalized change of attitudes. What you can expect is something more cosmetic. You will change your view of one or two members of an outgroup, but not of the outgroup as a whole. Same model again. Then we looked at moderation by subgroup identification. What about those people who more strongly or less strongly identified with the ethno-linguistic categories? And here you get exactly the effect that you would have predicted. Threat is particularly strongly related to bias for those people who are high subgroup identifiers. Highly Catholic, highly Protestant, you're the ones who are most impacted by um, distinctiveness in forming a judgment of the other group. And then the last figure of that type is the sort of Davidio effect, and I haven't shown these to Jack Davidio, but I know he will like them, because they show um, that actually people who are high in the common in-group identification, so people who feel a stronger Northern Irish identity, they're the people who show a, a weaker link um, between threat and bias. So those people are not wildly sectarian and that is not driven by um, the perception of threat of either type. Okay, I'm going to skip on now to, um, to show you another um, slightly different approach. Um, this is, again, um, looking at complexity and this time, in the same kind of a model, but we're, sim we're simplifying the model, we're using one kind of threat, and we're going to test the idea, which has never really been tested before, that these two types of complexity, suggested by Marilyn and her co-workers, mediate between the perception of threat and the extent to which you feel biased towards the other group, and that your causal chain begins with contact. And that's indeed what happens. Contact is negatively associated with threat. Contact is associated with both types of complexity. So the more you have these positive contacts with members of other groups, the more complexly you think about the relationships between the different groups. And distinctiveness threat, in turn, is negatively related um, to overlap complexity. So the more threat you perceive, this is a bit like what Putnam calls hunkering down, the more threat you, you, you perceive and feel, the less complex you become. And in turn, um, those things predict bias. So social identity complexity is also making a unique contribution to our understanding of the factors that link contact and bias. Again, these kind of effects are moderated by identification. I want to end up by focusing a little bit more on the work specifically on contact and showing you 
um, a couple of different things. First of all, I want to tell you about um, what is called the outgroup to outgroup generalization effect. And the second thing is to say a little bit more about extended contact. The outgroup outgroup um, generalization effect is this, this idea, as I mentioned earlier, that you can get trickle down or, or roll on effects from contact. And it would be extremely interesting if you could find that people who had experience of thinking in, uh, in more complex terms about identities would also be more likely to show these generalized contact effects. So just to go through the stages here, what we're arguing is that contact without group one will change attitudes to outgroup two, and it will do it by changing the attitude to outgroup one. So a Catholic will form more positive attitudes of ethnic minorities in Northern Ireland because their contact with Protestants has led them to be more, more positive about Protestants. Now, Tom Pettigrew has an interesting um, mediational route in mind here. He used this lovely term, deprovincialization. There's a sociologist in the audience. Uh, they might be able to remind me whether this, I think this might be one of Simmel's uh, ideas. And it is this idea that you sort of get out of your own small world identity and you begin to think of people and yourself and others in a more complex term. And this could work in a number of ways. It could work through reappraising the in-group. So through contact, you have a less glorified view of the in-group. But it could also work through social identity complexity, that through contact, you develop a richer sense of the multiplicity of categories that exist in our social environment, each of them having equal value. So we've taken measures in this study of cross-group friendship with the other religious group. We've, to use for control purposes, we've got contact with four other groups. These are the racial minorities, the new immigrants, traveling community, and the gay community. We've got a measure of similarity, complexity, and then we've got attitudes towards the ethno-religious in-group, the out-group, and all four uh, of these other groups. So we're testing, again, cross-sectionally, we're testing the idea that cross-group friendship between ethno-religious groups will have an impact on attitudes to other groups. It will do so through social identity complexity perhaps through a change, a less glorified evaluation of the in-group and through a, a, a change in the attitude to the ethno-religious group while controlling for contact with all the other groups. And that's exactly what we found. So, in fact, um, Tom Pettigrew's idea of in-group reappraisal here doesn't turn out to be a significant mediator but the notion of social identity complexity, which I think you can see actually as a measure of deprovincialization par excellence, does work statistically significantly as a mediator of the effect. Okay, I want to um, end up then with reference to a, to a recent longitudinal study, you may have held with me so far and said, yeah, but always have doubts about cross-sectional data and so on. We've tried for many, many years to get the grant money for the longitudinal study. I've had numerous grants funded and then they lop off 
the longitudinal component because it, it costs too much money. Uh, so this is a, a study where we've got about 1,000 adults from the four areas of Belfast, and we were able to get 400-odd of them uh, a year later to complete the survey again. And, of course, we've done all the usual things to test between the retained sample and the lost sample. No differences uh, between them on time one data. Just uh, to convince you, first of all, because it's extremely important that we just can show that it is contact that drives attitudes rather than the reverse self-selection bias, because it's entirely reasonable, of course, to think that bigots will avoid contact. That would be a, a rational expectation. And, and before I show you the results, I should emphasize that my own view, supported by, by our data and everyone else's data, is that both paths exist. It doesn't really matter that both paths exist, but you must be able to show that contact predicts attitudes. Otherwise, you're wasting your time on contact as an intervention. And what we showed here, um, using a cross-lagged analysis, is we were able to show that contact uh, with having out-group friends at time one does indeed predict reduced bias at time two, but in-group bias um, at time one does not significantly predict less friendship uh, at time two. So there is evidence for the longitudinal effect. The longitudinal analysis that I want to tell you about today, uh, having told you about the generalized contact effect, is where we tested that model longitudinally. So at time one, we've measured various measures of contact. I'm just showing you here the model for neighborhood contact. We've got the attitude to the other community, the other ethno-religious community at time one. We've got contact with religious, sorry, with racial minorities, and we've got attitudes towards racial minorities, all measured at time one. Then we try to predict the attitude to the other religious group at time two, and in turn, we try to predict the attitude to racial minorities. And, of course, you get predicted effects from three of these four variables. You don't get any effect of contact with racial minorities because there is so little of it. It's important to measure it and rule it out, but there is so little of it. And you get a mediated effect, just as Pettigrew argued, that contact is working by changing the attitude towards the religious outgroup, and there's also a, a direct effect uh, from attitudes to racial minorities from time one to time two, as you would expect. So for the first time ever, uh, we've been able to show mediators of this effect, and uh, we've been able to show the effect longitudinally. I want to just end up, uh, literally five minutes, I just want to end up um, by looking at extended contact, because I, th I think this is a really, really exciting um, kind of development. As I've said to you, it's this idea that contact is second-hand, and just knowing somebody who has an outgroup friend could be a very powerful influence. Its advantages are, are multiple. It means you make the best use of outgroup friends. So if I had an outgroup friend and I brought that outgroup friend to meetings that we had together, you would all benefit from the opportunity of watching me as an in-group member interacting with that person as an outgroup member. You would learn something about what forms of behavior were acceptable, for example. The salience of those two people you observe, one in-group and one outgroup member, would also be higher because you would be observing them. And that should be that should be positive and preferential for obtaining generalized effects. And thirdly, 
intergroup anxiety, which I haven't talked about today, but in much of our work we've shown that this anxiety about meeting with members of outgroups is one of the most important things that contact programs have to attack and can successfully attack. Through contact, you become less anxious about future interactions with people who belong to different groups. But if you're merely observing contact, you should be less anxious than if you're taking part in it. We showed this effect in Northern Ireland cross-sectionally back in 2004. Very simple idea that you, you measure the number of direct friends someone has, you measure the number of indirect friends they have, and you measure, um, let's just focus on prejudice for the moment, and you, in this case, are able to show that effects are mediated by reduced anxiety. So number of indirect or extended friends has an impact when controlling for direct contact. How does it work? According to Wright's theory, it works in a number of different ways. He uses this lovely um, notion of the inclusion of the other in the self, which you can think of as, as being two individuals who overlap. Picture them both as circles, and they overlap. So if you take your spouse or your partner or your best friend and you think of these two circles, they overlap greatly if that relationship is close. Whereas if you think of yourself and a neighbor you never talk to, then these circles are completely independent. And there is a, there is a very nice pictorial measure um, that taps this. Wright also believes that extended contact works through changing norms. And norms, I think, are absolutely fundamental in this process. There are out-group norms and there are in-group norms. And I think both of them should work. Because when you're watching these two individuals, in-group and out-group member, watching an out-group member being nice to an in-group member should change your perception of the norms about how out-group people behave towards in-group people. And the corollary of that is that watching the in-group member interact with the out-group member changes your view of what is acceptable for you as an in-group member to do and how you should behave to out-group members. And then, of course, we have intergroup anxiety, as mentioned already. So we tested this model longitudinally. I'll just point out here that this mediator here, uh, we could not longitudinally separate the two components, in-group and out-group norms, so we just have one measure, group norms. We're predicting bias at time two from all these supposed, these putative mediators at time two, and we're predicting them from extended contact at time one. And we're able to do that I'm sorry, uh, we're able to do that showing for the first time that extended contact works longitudinally and how it works. And two final effects which convey my excitement about extended contact because why should extended contact be important? I mean, we have this nice direct contact working. Why bother? Why bother with something else? The reason why we should bother, in my view, is that so many of us live in segregated neighborhoods. We work in segregated settings. We are educated in segregated institutions. So we don't have that opportunity for direct contact. And what we were also able to show in this study is a longitudinal effect from reporting more extended contact at time one to actually taking up more opportunities for direct contact at time two. So you could think of extended contact being a form of preparing yourself cognitively, mentally, behaviorally for actual contact. And we found that controlling for direct contact at time one, you can predict 
all three of our measures of direct contact at time two from the measure of extended contact at time one. My very final uh, piece of data I want to show you shows to me why I think extended contact is so important. We are looking here at the impact of indirect contact, and we're looking at whether it is moderated by how much direct contact you have. If you think for a second, you're a person who has a lot of cross-group friends. Why should you be impacted by your indirect or your extended contact? That's a weaker form of contact. Why should it have any influence on you? On the other hand, you might be somebody who lives in a highly segregated area, works in a segregated workplace, almost never sees members of, of the outgroup. You should be much more influenced by those occasions on which you see a member of your group interacting positively with a member of the outgroup. So we've got here in-group bias on the y-axis. We've got low versus high indirect contact on the x-axis. And if you look first at those people who have high cross-group friendship, those people are relatively untouched by how much indirect contact they have, as you'd expect. But then you look at those people who, who report low levels of, uh, of direct friendship, and their bias is significantly lower when they have high rather than low extended contact. So just as we predicted, extended contact is having this really strong, powerful effect precisely for those people who most need it because they live in segregated environments. Okay, well, I hope I've, I've shown you something of interest about the work that we're doing in Northern Ireland. It is evident that identities are still incredibly important here. That might strike you as a surprising thing to, to research, but there are some people who had, uh, who had begun to argue that the old identities were less important than they are. We've emphasized on identities being multiple and situationally salient. We've then moved on to, to look at Putnam's work and to show how contact appears to moderate that effect. And then we've looked at identity broken down further into the strength of identification and this interesting new measure of identity complexity, which I have to say originated in Ohio State University and has been, I think, successfully exported to Northern Ireland and back again. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Sorry, why I didn't follow? You, because here in our country we've done this experiment with desegregation. Are your schools parochial, so do all the Catholics go to one school and the Protestants go to another? The level of educational segregation in Northern Ireland is absolutely phenomenal. So there is a big thing in the nation. 90% of kids in schools go to, to segregated schools. Uh, there, are, uh, there are about 50 integrated schools across junior, mid-level, and senior in the whole country. Um, people have studied them. Um, there's a real difficulty in studying them because of self-segregation, self-selection self biases. Um, we actually have a huge grant in at the moment um, to study kids in Northern Irish schools uh, throughout the whole the whole part, five-year period of senior secondary education um, because there is increased mixing 
between schools. There is, there is governmental policy to get the kids out and to mix in some kind of settings. I mean, the whole thing is a sort of, in many ways, is a nightmare because you don't wear school uniforms in, in, in your schools here. Now, as a parent of two children, I love school uniforms because it means you don't fight about what gets worn to school tomorrow. But it, it's amazing. In Northern Ireland, you come out and you're even dressed in different cro- clothes because you go to a different school. So. Uh-huh. And there is a thing where kids can't wear gang colors. Right, so right, difficult. yeah. So, so that's why we haven't um, done that. We've done a couple of things in schools. We've done lots of studies in, uh, in students. Now, students are actually very interesting because normally um, social psychologists apologize grossly for studying the white rat and the sophomore student. Um, we're terribly embarrassed about it. We, 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 we kind of overcome that, embarrass- that, that embarrassment, right, Bob? <laughs> we, we learn to live with it. Um, but there's a very good reason to study them in Northern Ireland because that's the moment where people go from primarily segregated environments to what I would call desegregated or mixed environments. So it's actually a very interesting time to study them. Yes, one, two. I wanted to ask you about Yeah, that's a very, very key, key question. Um, this is the reason why so far we have decided not to try and study these planned integrated neighborhoods because my assumption would be that you know, the most liberal people would opt to go and live in a new development with the other group. I think they may be interesting to study for another reason, actually, because I think they may be a form of extended contact. I think it might be interesting to study what other people hear of those areas, what they think of them, and what impact it has on them. There was a massive movement of population in Belfast at the height of the Troubles, so around the 1970s. And we've asked people how long they lived in their neighborhoods, and they have typically been there all that time. So we're not talking about people um, who who have only recently shifted areas. And that's about as good as we can get. Uh, I mean, ideally, you'd want more than that, but we know they've been in these areas a heck of a long time. And, and, and we can look at the effect of that, although we haven't done that yet, if we want to try and break that down by how long they have been there. But, yeah, we are, we are constantly pursued by this sort of self-selection bias, and we're trying to deal with that. One of the things with the longitudinal data is that they help us to deal with that in part. So even if people were more liberal and less liberal at time one, we still can look at whether there's been change as a function of contact over time. But, but it's, it's a very tricky one to unpack. But as I say, the best we can probably do is, is we know they've been there a long time. Yeah.
That would be fantastic to have. Yeah, we, we don't actually have... I mean, I've never done a study in my life where there's a question that I, I, I did not regret asking, and I wish I'd asked that now. We, we asked so much else and crammed this into an interview schedule, but we didn't ask that. We didn't, we don't, we're not able to sort of track the neighborhoods that they've lived in. The closest that we've done uh, is when we've done stuff with university students. We've done very detailed questioning uh, so they've got these kids around uh, 18 to 21. We asked them about their secondary schools. Uh, we asked them about the proportions there, the friends there. We've asked them about their junior schools, and we've asked them about their home neighborhoods. So we've done that kind of thing in, in other places. And interestingly, what you find then is, is you find evidence for it. We, we haven't published this yet because we're, we're trying to run another study just to get a replication. What you find is a strong relationship between contact at secondary school and bias at, at, at now in university, which you'd expect. No direct effect from contact in primary school, but you're ask, it's doing this retrospectively. So you're asking 18-year-olds to remember things about when they were about 11. But what you find is a nice trickle-down effect. You find if you went to a primary, what we call a primary school, you call an elementary school. I'll learn this language if I come here, I promise. Uh, if, I meant by that, if you offer me the job and I come here. Sorry, this, just so nobody, <laughs> nobody misunderstands me. Uh, um, if you go to an elementary school and you have these positive contacts, that makes you more likely to have positive contacts at secondary school. So you get a nice knock-on effect. Yes? You know, we've, we've looked at religion in, in other studies. It's, it's, um, I'm very, very much guided by my, my colleagues on the ground there uh, in the, the terms we use. Um, and this is not a theological conflict. It's an ethno-political conflict. And, uh, you know, we have measured religiosity and found it does very, very little. Um, so so that, that's my answer to, to that one. Sorry, I forgot the first part of the question. I, was, I, I had this distracting voice saying, which part of England does he come from? Just answer the question, then I won't be distracted. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Traditional effect found over many, many, many surveys is that Catholics are more positive to Protestants than vice versa. Yeah. Which is actually rather surprising given, given um, the past of religious discrimination and, and so on. It's not a huge effect, but it is still there. We found that on uh, measures. You know, I've, I've done work that I haven't talked about today on religious trust, on forgiveness, and all sorts of other things as well as, as bias. But no, I, I go so far as to say, you know, I, I, I certainly would stand by our, our decision not to, not to pay too much attention to, to religion. I think, it, you know, I think religion is now a, 
it's just a, a proxy for something else. Yeah, and it you know it pans out occasionally when times are really bad. Um, people will do things like um, they will um, they will attack and despoil a church that belongs to the other group. But I don't think that's a religious act there. That's a bit like throwing a brick through a butcher's window because the butcher is a, is a minority group member. I don't, I don't see that as a religious... Uh, sorry, I've lost... I always do this. Uh, I've got a feeling you were, you were first. That's a really, really interesting question, um, and we didn't ask the we didn't ask the question. Um, so it's a sort of meta question. So I, I I don't know whether anyone has thought of doing that. I do think that's a really interesting question. Uh, psychologists generally have a healthy disrespect for what people know about themselves. Okay, you know the the, the pe- people sort of claim to be non-prejudiced, and you design some fancy test, and they are prejudiced. So, you know, I, I'm not sure how it will work. I think it's a good question. We, we might ask that in the future. So we've got nothing on it at the at the moment. I'm sorry, a flurry of hands went up, and I'm going to offend five people if I don't take their question. Yeah. Hmm. The part of Northern Ireland I know best is County And during the late 90s, especially, there was a lot of money that these friends and used by various groups who would take over an old They close it, they refurbish it, and then they open it as a cross community. Right. And they would have what they call cross community members. And they would get Catholics and Protestants to come together. And the minority of people who already sort of Catholic mummers. It's a a folk drum um, at Christmas time. Mm. Two heroes fight, one dies. But it's seen as a a Catholic nationalist sort of custom to do at Christmas. But it used to be more integrated. Anyway, when the local Protestant pub invited them in to perform for the first time in a long time since before the pub started, um, this actually had a great effect, and I think it fits in with your extended Yeah, a huge amount of money has gone into into funded efforts, and uh, 
um, one of my close colleagues who works in social policy, Joanne Hughes, you know, she's, she's written a, a paper which is title is something like so many million pounds of wasted effort, question mark. You know, a heck of a lot of money has, has been waste, wasted. Um, and it is terribly disappointing. And we, we did this huge project, which they funded generously. Um, but trying to get to the next stage, trying to impact on policy is just so frustratingly difficult. Um, do you, you do your best. I mean, I go there all the time. I'll talk to anybody who asks me to talk. Um, and I, th- I think things... I'm, I'm an optimist. I do think things are changing massively, um, particularly among young people who went for a long period of time without any experience of mixing with, with the other group. And, you know, it was told to me that the parades, the parades which are a, a flashpoint, uh, or used to be a flashpoint every summer... It was told to me by older people that, you know, when they grew up, everyone used to go to the parade from both sides, and they would watch it. Then it became this sort of ethno-sectarian, we'll march through your neighborhood in your face, and, and the, whole, the whole thing changed. Yeah, it's crucial, crucial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the American experience is different. Um, and, but then I think, I think given that it's different, maybe you should also be a bit more careful before writing an article about diversity and distrust that is picked up by world leaders. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There are all sorts of reasons to think they wouldn't be the same. So we've just written a... Uh, well, we have a big grant just starting, um, which is going to be looking at these issues in, in Britain. So we had ethnic disturbances in northern mill towns in 2001. Um, we're going to be doing work in survey research in neighborhoods, uh, and we're going to be doing work in longitudinal work in schools there. So we'll be getting some uh, English data to go with it. And um, I'm collaborating um, with a Max Planck Institute in Germany and some colleagues uh, spinning out from there. We've just put in a, a grant which will be for a longitudinal study in the UK, Germany, the Netherlands, France, um, with, with Norway and Canada, just through the complexities of the funding scheme with Canada and Norway as add-ons. So we're trying to get the data. Yeah, I, I think it's too early. It's too early to say, um, but but we'll have to see. I, I do. I, I think about it. Uh, I think about it a lot, and I, I take every 
<coughs> every reasonable opportunity I can to, to go out and, and collect data somewhere else. You know, we've also got a big project running in Cyprus, for example, um, showing very similar kinds of effects. I think, I think you've got to capitalize first on the economic drivers of these things. So what, one of the things that they're planning to do in Northern Ireland is that they, they've now got a government policy to make schools collaborate at a higher level. So they're administrators, they're teachers, they're some exchange of pupils. So, for example, you go to one school, you get to your senior year, and you'd like to do a particular collection of subjects in your studies. You can't, you can't do all of them in your school. So you'll go to the neighborhood school for two of your subjects, something like that. There is government-supported schemes for doing that kind of thing. Now, one level beyond that is to say things like, look, you guys need an all-weather sports pitch. We're going to build you a pitch. We're going to give you floodlights. We're going to give you a swimming pool as well. But this must be used by you know, two schools of each type or whatever. So money can be used for all those kind of things. And, and that will lead to the, the sort of intermingling that will be the first stage. A lot of it is about fear reduction, just getting people to coexist in in settings where, where previously all they could think about was, was fear. So that's what I would do. I mean, they're massive sums of money. You think of, think of Northern Ireland that's a conflict that went on for over 30 years. You think about the security budget over all those kind of years um, and, and what you could have done with that money um, to try and do things differently. And I, I, I think... I'm, I'm a, I don't believe that economic factors are the only important thing, but I do think that you can capitalize on to, to drive change of attitudes. That, that's one of the key things I would do. And everything that I set up, I would set up on the, the sound social psychological principles. I mean, one of my, my little dream scenarios, which I've discussed with, uh, with, with my Northern Irish friends who were talking about the school uniforms, you see, and one of the manipulations that we use, not, not we, the Davidio Gartner people use in their studies, they, they have people in a lab room and they have the green team wearing green T-shirts and the red team wearing red shirts. And then they, they do crossovers and you, you wear something in common. I thought, you know, you're wearing a nice tie today. So you, you, take, a, you take a tie. You know, you might take a different, and, and our kids wear ties with their uniform. So, you know, you have the green uniforms that belong to one group and the blue that belong to another. And then you say, okay, at a higher level, both you... Both of these schools belong to a collaboration between schools in Omar, whatever, and you give them a common tie. Just little things like that. You build it up slowly. So, so tie people into structures and give them economic support for them. That's what I would do. That's a really interesting question. Um, if they go out, um, perhaps then you have that secondary contact. If they're staying together, they're, they're Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I can't recall. I don't think we asked that question, but we did ask questions about your children because we, we think that another interpretation of the extended contact thing okay. is to say if you are young and have no outgroup friends, but maybe your grandmother who remembers the old days when they did mix does have some friends, then that's a, a potential extended link. So we, we can and will look at that. But um, I, 
what I know is because there are so few integrated schools, then people go to those from many different areas. But I didn't, that is a question to which I honestly don't know the answer, in the, particularly in the areas of Belfast where those kids would go to school. Thank you.